morning. It's good to see all your faces this morning. Uh, even as many in our church are out at a retreat with disciple makers. Uh, I feel like I need to move up a couple rows. Um, so for those of you who've been with us, we've been preaching through the book of Mark, uh, which gives an account of the life of Jesus Christ. Uh, if you're visiting this morning, I encourage you to come back next week. We'll resume that series. Uh, but this week we're going to take a, a slight focus shift and uh, take a dive into a particular focus of Mark's gospel, uh, which happens to coincide with uh, Jesus' focus through Mark chapter 2. So what was that focus? Chapter 1, verse 38, tells us, Jesus came out to preach, it says. Jesus came out to preach. And verse 15 contains his message, Repent and believe in the good news, which is the gospel. Repent and believe. So we've often talked about what it means to believe in the good news or the gospel, and I'd like to focus this morning on this idea of repentance. A simple definition of repentance is this, to change your mind and behavior. To change your mind and behavior. And specifically in Jesus' preaching, this meant to turn from sin and to do good. So sometimes people visualize it as actually turning around, to turn from sin and to do good. That's repentance. So uh, why a message on repentance? What's the motivation? Uh, There's three reasons I believe the Lord put this on my heart. First is a reminder. Second is a warning. And and lastly is a personal testimony. So first... I wanted to share this as a reminder. While sin remains, repentance is your calling. While sin remains, repentance is your calling. Now, perhaps some of you are here today, you don't see the need to repent because you don't see how sinful you are. And I pray this morning that you would see yourself as God sees you. God says we are not like him, pure and holy, and therefore we need to receive his Holy Spirit and repent. But... The reminder for the rest who do claim to have repented is this. Repentance is still your calling. If you remember, uh, Martin Luther launched the Reformation by posting his 95 theses to the door of his church. And do you remember the very first one that launched the Reformation, which were part of the day? He said this, the very first thesis. When our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ, said, repent, He called for the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. The entire life. So, though a believer will show a radical change in lifestyle at first, soon hidden sins are revealed. Pride, selfishness, and we start seeing these deeper levels. And so more than anything, this sermon is a plea for this ongoing repentance. I want to encourage you that sin can and must be killed in your life. If you wonder really if ongoing repentance is necessary, I just want to give you this. Recall Christ's words to the churches in Revelation. And remember, five of them out of the seven were called to repentance. To the fallen Ephesians, these are the words of Jesus Christ. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. To the deceived of Pergamum, you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. 
to the adulterers of Thyatira, those who commit adultery with Jezebel, I will throw into great tribulation unless they, unless they repent of her works. To the slothly Sardinians, you have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. And finally, to the lukewarm Laodiceans, you are neither hot nor cold. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Now, these churches contained Christians. And Christ called these churches of Christians to repentance, a deeper repentance. So likewise, all who call themselves Christians should examine themselves for their ongoing need for repentance. That's the first reason. The second reason I wanted to share this morning was by way of a warning. Um, It's simply this, that belief without repentance does not lead to everlasting life. Belief without repentance does not lead to everlasting life. Already in Mark's gospel, we see the demons are the first to recognize, or you could say, believe in Christ, calling him the Holy One of God. Of course, they didn't repent from their evil deeds. And remember what James says. He says, even the demons believe and shudder. Faith, apart from works, is useless. So belief without repentance does not lead to everlasting life. And finally, just as a personal testimony, um, on a personal level, an ongoing soul-searching repentance um, has, has really brought more revival and transformation in my life than anything. And so I was given the chance to, to, to share on and preach on anything, and I, I was like, wow, you know, repentance. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so... If you have your Bible this morning, open to Romans chapter 8. Our text this morning is going to be short. Romans chapter 8, verse 13. Romans chapter 8, verse 13. We will proceed by considering the choice Paul presents to his audience. That's the choice, part two on your outline. And then we'll focus on the second half of this verse to draw out three timeless imperatives for all of us. Romans chapter 8, verse 13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. This is a beautiful text. Um, A beloved text, really. This whole chapter and this whole book. uh, Much can be said about it, and in fact, much has been said about it. Uh, I didn't realize till after the fact that perhaps the greatest work ever written on dealing with the subject of sin, some would say, was written on this second half of Romans 8.13 uh, by the famous Puritan John Owen. Maybe you've heard of him. I highly recommend his book, Mortification of Sin. Um, to all who want deep and powerful insights into the subject, this is actually a compilation of three of his works, John Owen's Mortification of Sin. I couldn't help but just plugging this. Um, this guy goes deeper than, than anybody I've, I've heard of. He, he more than understands the subject. John Owen lived out his understanding of killing sin, and he, he is a pastor to pastors. Um, this version, I think, was written a few years ago. It received a number of raving endorsements from people like John Piper, C.J. Mahaney, Philip Riken. Let me just read a couple. 
No writer has taught me more about the dynamics of the heart and the deceitfulness of sin than John Owen. Read this book carefully. It will help you understand your heart and experience God's grace. That's C.J. Mahaney, Philip Ryken. John Owen is a spiritual surgeon with the rare skill to cut away the cancer of sin and bring gospel healing to the sinner's soul. Apart from the Bible, I have found his writings to be the best books ever written to help me stop sinning the same old sins. So I didn't read this for this sermon, but I have read parts before. It's it's really excellent. Um, it does a much better job on exegeting Romans 8.13. But this morning, uh, we're going to talk about just a few fundamental points in Romans 8.13. So Romans 8.13 comes on this incredible doctrinal, uh, this doctrine that Paul has been building throughout the book of Romans. His brilliant exposition and explanation of how one is made right with God through faith, and then how Christ satisfied the requirements of the law, and how we are freed from sin to obey. Um, Romans is really a, a rich and a glorious book. And we only have time to briefly consider this whole text of Romans 8.13 in the context of Romans. And we're just going to focus on this verse. So I want to I just look at this contrast between the first and the second halves. First, notice how life and death in the first half is mirrored in the second. It says, for if you live, you will die. But if you put to death, you will live. If you live, you will die. If you put to death, you will live. What kind of life and death is he talking about? Um, now, the life referred to here is obviously not physical death because, or physical life because it says it is appointed unto man wants to die in a physical sense. So the life referred to here is the life of the spirit or spiritual life. Having life in your spirit allows you to commune with God's spirit, to know his mind, and even to have our emotions stirred by his presence. Likewise, death in your spirit um, cuts us off from God's presence, his spirit. It causes us to be ignorant of his thoughts and even to feel this heavy loneliness and darkness without his presence. So the text says what might seem to give life, spiritual life, we understand, actually produces death. What seems to give life produces death. So to have spiritual life, this thing that kills, that kills us must itself be killed. It's either going to kill you or it's going to be killed. This thing that kills us is quote, living according to the flesh, or the deeds of the body. Our flesh and our body represent that natural part of us, the natural part of us. The problem is, by nature, we are ignorant of truth. We seek our own good and not that of others. We have no interest in God, and we break his laws. This natural part of us is a lawbreaker and produces the deeds of the body. If we live life according to this nature, our spirits will be unfit to commune with the good and perfect and holy God. So the cure is basic but drastic. We must kill this natural flesh. We must kill it. And this killing, Paul tells us, is accomplished by the Spirit of God. For it says, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. 
Now, there are three aspects of repentance I wanted to impress upon you this morning from the second half of this verse. If by the Spirit you put death, these are the body, you will live. First, we need to identify what the specific deeds of the body are in our lives. We need to identify them. Second, we need to kill them. And finally, we need to kill them by the Spirit. By the Spirit. But of course, before we can repent, which means to turn, we need to clearly identify our sins. Now, sin is good at hiding. Very good at hiding. Have you played hide-and-seek, kids? Have you guys played hide-and-seek before? Uh, sin is even better at hiding than you guys are. It's even better hiding than my daughter, Karis. Now, Karis is an excellent hider. Uh, she, uh, she is excellent at staying out of sight, at staying quiet, and even finding new places once she's been found. And with my help, Karis is just about impossible to find. In fact, uh, I hit her once, and it took, after 15 or 20 minutes in our small upstairs, Jaden and Kelly still could not find Karis. And to this day, we're the only ones who know that secret location. Um, and we might use it again. But uh, it was pretty fun. But sin is better at hiding even than Karis. It's excellent. It hides in our lives. It remains quiet, out of sight, where we don't see it. We don't even know it's there. That's because sin is deceitful. And when we ask our hearts if we're doing a good job, am I doing well? Our hearts happily remind us of all the good things we've done or at least want to do, tried to do. And that's because sin is really good at hiding from our hearts as well. Now, consider it. For those who are married, this is really easy to see. Uh, sorry for the single people for this illustration, but simply recall what you thought of yourself before you were married, and then after you were married for a while, what you think of yourself. Did your spouse help you see any selfish behavior you never saw before? Did your spouse help you see anything in your life you never saw? Now, ask yourself honestly. Um, if you're being honest, if they're speaking the truth and you're willing to hear, of course they did. Of course they helped you see something because on its own, your heart deceives you. So we need outside perspective, but we need something else. And honestly, this may be the most important thing um, to really consider doing this morning that I would like to share. Friend, you need to examine yourself for specific sins. Examine yourself. Um, an incredible spiritual revival occurred in my life about four years ago by applying this principle. Um, I found it in this outline for repentance uh, that Keith Green put together or actually Charles Finney put together, and Keith Green had it in his book. I want to read a little bit of this for you, and uh, honestly, this is gold. This is gold. Just a few pages that will really challenge you. Let me just read a paragraph of his preface. Self-examination consists of looking at your life, considering your motives and actions, calling up your past, and seeing its true character. Look back over your history. Take up your individual sins one by one 
and look at them. This doesn't mean that you take a casual glance at your past life, see that it has been full of sin, and then go to God and make a sort of general confession asking forgiveness. General confessions of sins are not good enough. Your sins were committed one by one, and as much as you are able, they ought to be reviewed and repented of one by one. And so he goes on and he says you should take a pen and paper, and then he goes through category by category and helps you think through this. <laughs> and it's, uh, it, it's intense, I would, I would say for myself. Let me just read one. We have a little time here. Ingratitude. We'll take ingratitude. Take this sin, for example, and write down under this heading all the times you can remember where you have received great blessings in favor of God for which you have never given thanks. How many cases can you remember? Some remarkable protection where your life was spared or some wonderful turn of events that saved you from ruin. Write down the instances of God's goodness to you when you were still in sin before your conversion, for which you have never been half thankful enough, and the uncountable mercies you have received since. How long the list of times where your ingratitude has been so black that you are forced to hide your face in shame. Get on your knees and confess them one by one to God and ask him to forgive you. So it goes on like that. Um, I, I went to a hill near my house. It's a great spot. Uh, for looking out over the valley. Um, it's also a great spot for solitude. And and I went there, and I took this. Actually, I just took a notebook and a pen, and I just started thinking through the categories I could think of in my life. And as I wrote, my mind was awakened uh, to recall other sins. And so my list started growing, and I had a page I had a page, and I, I had pages. And this thing started growing. I want to share the rest of that story later. But, brothers and sisters, do you have some specific sin that is barring you from walking in the full power and joy of your salvation? Is God trying to speak to your heart like the churches in Revelation we heard of, but you refuse to stop and examine yourself, to hear his voice? Don't wait until it's too late. Listen, examine yourself. God loves you, and he longs to forgive you and to be reconciled. But seeing sin is just the first step. We need to see the sin, but next the text tells us to put to death the deeds of the body. Once these deeds have been known, we are called to completely remove them. In fact, to kill them. Uh, The attitude um, is perhaps best stated by Jesus himself. Remember in Matthew 5.29, in one of his hardest teachings... He says this, If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one member of your body, one of your members, than that your whole body go into hell. Now it's a logical statement, really, isn't it? Hear the logic. It's certainly better for part of you to die than for all of you to die. Uh, But does Christ really want us to to do this thing specifically? Uh, We could talk about this for a long time, but I just want to make a few points. First, Jesus intends to grip you and to shock you by this 
So be gripped. Be shocked. Second, wouldn't we need to remove both of our eyes if we were to stop looking and seeing things? Wouldn't we need to remove both of our hands to keep us from touching? So perhaps Jesus has something else in mind. Thirdly, um, do we need our eyes and our hands to lust? By the way, the context of this verse is on lust. Do we need our eyes and our hands to sin, or is the source of our lust from within us? Of course it's within us. Indeed, if you didn't see or touch, you would still be able to lust. If you lost your sight, so it's not removing the source of the sin. And finally, the historical teachings of the church has always been to apply this to our attitude and behavior. And uh, people who have taken these kinds of things to literally like origin regretted it later. So anyway, similarly to Hebrews 12, this passage radically raises the standard for fighting sin. Have you done this? Have you cut your eye out? Have you cut off your hand? Then you haven't gone all the way. It's saying there's more you can do. There's more you can do to resist sin. And I just want to know, friends, where are the hardcore sin fighters today? The men and women willing to make radical lifestyle changes to fight sin. To kill sins, sometimes we need to give things up that are not in themselves sinful. So so take the struggle with lust. If you struggle with lust, you have every reason to avoid the beach and to stop watching modern movies. In fact, what business do you have putting your eyes on things like that when you are sinning against God in that way? Or if you find yourself always too busy to do the thing God places on your heart, too busy, too busy. Well, and yet God's saying, I want you to do this thing. Why not lower your standard of living? Why not get a simpler, less consuming job? Why not remove your hobbies and be obedient to what God put on your heart? As a final example, what if you find yourself able to easily watch multiple hours of television on a virtual flat screen, but you can't take 20 minutes out of your schedule to dedicate yourself to fervent prayer before the living God? Perhaps it's time to take a sledgehammer to that TV. We need to kill sin. okay? And this attitude needs to be applied to each sin in your life. We must be killing this sin, and it's going to be uncomfortable, and it's going to require self-denial, and it hurts. And this is what the church has been teaching and done for millennia. Now, all this sounds rather difficult to do, and even impossible. It's pretty heavy. But I've saved the best part for last. Brothers this and sisters, this work must be done by the Spirit. By the Spirit. Now, when I was on that hill and I had gotten to the end of this time and I was looking at this pages of, of sin and I was thinking, God, how could, I, how could I really be free? How could I say I'm not going to do this anymore? How could I trust you and be free of this? And um, It was a really hard uh, moment for me as I was struggling with this thought. And I wrestled for a while. And and I finally came to this point where I realized I haven't seen this happen in my life. I haven't, I don't know if I've seen other people even do this, but I need to trust God that he can free me from this sin. I need to trust him completely. I need to take a step of faith. 
And so I did. In my heart, I decided I'm going to believe God can do this in my life. I don't see how it's possible. I'm going to believe him. And I did. And over the next few weeks, um, God actually brought to mind uh, things that I hadn't thought of. People actually called me uh, out of the blue and started uh, revealing things to me that had never crossed my mind. And over those weeks, as I started spending more and more time in the Word and in prayer, and the joy of the Lord was overflowing in my life, there came a point when I was walking out behind my office and praying, and I saw a coworker, and uh, he asked me, what are you doing? And I, the Lord pricked me again, been standing next to this guy or sitting and working for years, never shared with him. And I just shared the gospel with him. And, and that's when something happened. Something broke in me. And uh, again, I don't want to focus on experience too much this morning, but for the next week, uh, I happened to be alone without family. And uh, Kelly and the kids were out of town, and, and I, uh, I had this just incredible time. I, uh, I just started witnessing to everybody. I went to the park, and I started... There was something that happened inside of me that I really can't explain. It's the closest feeling I've had to heaven, I'll say. And uh, there was a power in my heart and a peace and a joy. I felt so perfect uh, in a way that can only be, can't be described with words. I literally felt blameless before God. And, um, and I think that the Lord just uh, wanted to give me that taste. This is what he wants for us. This is what he wants us to walk in. But it comes with this attitude of killing sin and of trusting him for freedom in that. To all who confess their sins to God to be cleansed, he promised his spirit to aid us in this battle. Friend, if you're here today without looking to God for the forgiveness of your sins, you lack the Holy Spirit, and thus you lack the main ingredient for success in overcoming sin. But even to those who have looked to Christ, we still need to trust his Spirit. I think John says this the best. In, in 1 John chapter 2, he identifies the world with sinful flesh. And then in chapter 5, he utters these beautiful words. This is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. This is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. We need faith to depend on the Spirit each day. We need faith. Just as there is no victory without grace, there is no victory without faith. Now, what is our faith ultimately rooted in? As all of the Christian life, our faith is rooted in a historical facts as recorded by Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, that this man, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, was born to a virgin. He lived a life, a perfect life of holiness and love. And that though he was publicly mocked and tortured and died a slow, painful death on a tree, his spirit gave new life to his physical body. And he left the tomb they buried him in, and he came out with a physical body. He rose from the grave. And this has been recorded. This historical facts have been recorded and witnessed by hundreds, even thousands. And this is what our faith is based on. And by his death, Christ showed us how much God loves us. Now, there is no, there is no victory without Christ's victory. There is no uh, faith, I should say, without Christ's victory over death. But there's also no victory over sin without your ongoing faith and his resurrection power in your life. You can only live, this verse tells us, by killing sin. 
but you can only kill sin by the Spirit. Friends, it must be by the Spirit. To those who feel weak this morning and hopeless, perhaps you've stumbled so many times you can't even believe it's possible to stop sinning. I can't change. You must have faith. Believe. God promised you. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you can bear. Do you believe the Scripture? I want to encourage you. It's true. He won't allow you to be tempted beyond what you can bear. To the one who feels hopelessly addicted and they're stuck, have faith. You must have faith. To kill sin, we have to first believe and have faith that God can do this in us. We must believe the Word of God. These are not my words. These are the words of Scripture. God's Word says we can do what? We can resist the devil. It says we can overcome the world. It says we must put to death the deeds of the flesh. And consider it. If you think you're always going to struggle with this particular sin, you probably will. It's hard to win from a position of weakness. The power to overcome starts with faith and hope. You must set your hope on Christ, that this is a battle that can be won in his strength. And true faith appropriates Christ's strength through his spirit to kill sin. So I just want to encourage us this morning. Encourage us to a sincere repentance. It must be a resolve to turn from sin and yet to do so by faith in God's necessary grace. God has allotted each man a day of grace, a time for repentance. I know in my life that there was a time when the Lord let me know pretty clearly that that window was getting smaller and I was afraid. And the first half of this verse should actually strike fear in your heart. Have you ever known the fear of God? But there is a promise and there is a hope and there is a foundation to stand on. He gives us his truth. I urge you, if you haven't taken thorough stock of the specific sins in your life, don't go another day without it. Do it. Do this in the spirit and see if God doesn't work revival in your spirit. How he longs to fill you with power and to fill your heart with his presence. And how he loves you. How he loves you with me. The pleasure of knowing his love in our hearts is perhaps the greatest motivator of all. And I have to say, as I was working through that time, as I was spending time in prayer and in his word, um, just the thought of his pleasure uh, was the greatest motivation. So I want you to just just meditate on that um, this morning. And we didn't talk a lot about God's love, but that is an important component of why this is possible and why this is good. Why don't we just pray now? I'll invite the musicians to come up. Oh God, I just ask you, Lord, to have grace and mercy that we would see, open our eyes, Lord, to see the things that you see, the things that grieve your heart. And God, you want a church that is healthy and vibrant, and yet we haven't even repented of all the sins you see. And so, God, have mercy. I pray that we would trust you, that we would believe in you, that we can overcome these sins. Only by your Spirit can it be done, Lord. So we ask for your Spirit. Send your Spirit all the more, Lord, that we would kill sin in our life. We would overcome it. 
We thank you for your love on the cross, Lord, that draws us. We thank you for for giving us all things in Christ Jesus, for your power. Lord, it, it, it raised Christ from the dead, and that power is available to all who trust and obey. Lord, it's available to us to overcome sin. I thank you for your power in our life. And I ask that, Lord, Grace Fellowship and the people here and those who, who hear this text would choose to fo- the way of life, would choose to turn and, and trust you, perhaps for the first time in specific areas of their life. They've known defeat for so long in those areas. I pray for, for new life there, Lord. I pray for new life, and I thank you for this, this hope of life. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.